Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening received his PhD from the University of Cambridge in 2005, and since 2008 has been a professor of historical and systematic theology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chad Pecknold has authored or edited five books, each relating to modern philosophical and theological reason. He teaches in the areas of fundamental theology, Christian anthropology, and political theology. A frequent contributor to debates in the public square, he writes weekly columns as the U.S. contributing editor to the Catholic Herald and also writes regularly for First Things, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and National Review on a range of timely topics related to the importance and impact of church teaching on social and political questions. In addition to teaching at the Catholic University of America, Dr. Pecknold is currently writing a book on a Catholic understanding Augustine's City of God, and we're very excited to welcome Dr. Pecknold to the ICC family for the first time tonight. Dr. Pecknold, the floor is yours. Thanks so much for having me. This is new for me. Um, I've done all sorts of wild things with technology, including uh, tweeting out uh, the whole of the City of God. So I'm continually learning how to use uh, this uh, technology for the good. And this is clearly uh, a good, a great good uh, to use this technology to draw our attention to the thought of a saint. Uh, and it's really incredible to think about the fact that uh, we are, we're so near to this saint. I mean, this is a, this is a 19th century saint who's just been uh, canonized. And now we get to sit and at his feet and learn from him. Uh, St. John Henry Newman, born February 21st, 1801 in London. Uh, I want to give a little bit of background to his life. I know um, Professor Peirce uh, gave a gave a, um, a institute talk on his life, but I want to say a few words for those who weren't able to attend that about his life. And then a little bit of background on uh, the essay, uh, where it's situated in his life and, and how how he arrived at at the 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 theses that and the seven notes on on doctrinal development, uh, and then we'll walk through the seven seven notes of doctrinal development. I'll uh, delineate them and help you understand them. They're located in chapter five of uh, the essay on development in a summary way. So if if you want to read along as we do that. And if you have access to the text, uh, you're welcome to do so. Um, and then afterwards, uh, I'll have a few concluding words about um, about the theory, about Newman's theory of doctrinal development. And do we need to accept it? 
uh, and uh, and some considerations about what it's for and how we should think about it and how we should not think about it. Uh, and so we'll we'll go through that and then we'll open it up for questions. So, as I say, he was born in 1801 in London. His life uh, is a, a very much a full 19th century life. His his father was a banker of some means. Uh, he has an elite education. He studies as a as a young man. Uh, the thought of uh, David Hume, one of the great Enlightenment skeptics, um, and then at 15 he becomes a an evangelical. He comes very early on to be critical of evangelicalism, of a Protestant spirit, which he he thinks is marked by um, a kind of religious subjectivism, and uh, especially by what he takes to be, and what he will later call the the principle of private judgment, which he sees very much evidenced in Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, these are, in his view, a kind of fideistic flip side to Humean skepticism, uh, and that skepticism and fideism are like two sides of the same coin. Justification by faith alone, and, and Luther becomes skepticism in David Hume. And uh, so this principle of Protestantism, uh, he thinks, is rooted in private judgment, this private judgment. So right there, you can see something like an idea of development, right? Only here, it's bad development. It's Luther's idea of private judgment, uh, the principle of private judgment arriving out of his doctrine of justification by faith alone. That develops and later becomes all sorts of things, as he'll, he'll um, say later that it, that principle will manifests itself in pietism and pantheism and skepticism and in various uh, ways become uh, developed as a, a, a bad principle. He studied at Oxford in 1825. He became an Anglican priest. Soon after, uh, he joined with other Catholic-minded Anglicans to form the Oxford movement, which ran roughly from 1828 to uh, well, until the time he writes the essay, which is definitely his fervent break from Anglin Angl Anglicans as he, he's received into the church. Um, his famous tracks for the times were uh, like rock star uh, documents that everyone read. He has early doubts about Anglican branch theory. The Anglican branch theory was, uh, I was once an Anglican, and we used to like to say, we'll, we'll be Catholic, but not through Rome. Uh, that That is a phrase which comes right out of the Anglican branch theory. It's the view that the Orthodox and the Anglicans and the Roman Catholics are each branches of the Catholic Church. And so this is why they insist that we're Roman Catholics, and they're Anglican Catholics. And uh, Newman has doubts about this as early as uh, 1839. Uh, and he comes to see that the branch theory doesn't really hold up with his reading of history. Um, he read the whole Arian controversy, becoming a student of, of, the, of the early church, showed him that the Anglican position was closest to the semi-Arian. Well, that showed him that Anglicans don't have a good claim to be Catholic if they line up with the semi-Aryans in uh, the fourth century. So this was a revelation to him to discover 
that to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Uh, and, uh, and he rejected the branch theory on which Anglo-Catholicism rested, and that really propelled him uh, into this uh, delving into history, into thinking about what constitutes true development, what constitutes genuine development. And uh, by the time he uh, finishes writing this essay in 1845, he... he um, he decides that Catholicism is the living principle of Christianity that he's been pursuing all along. Um, and uh, on October 9th in 1845, he goes to Father Dominic Barberia, an Italian passionist, and asks to be received and received uh, into the church. So I think the essay should be read as the dawning of an intellectual conversion. It's the dawning of Newman's intellectual conversion. Augustine in the Confessions famously sort of records his intellectual conversion prior to the conversion of his will. And I think we can see something like that in Newman too. The essay on the doctrine of on doctrinal development is a kind of conversion of his intellect, which leads him to the conversion of his will and uh, and his uh, acceptance of the of the Lord's grace in. Um, receiving him into the Catholic Church, um, he he um, originally was wanting to uh, get a imprimatur from the church for um, the essay because he's becoming Catholic just as he's publishing it. Um, but the church, in its wisdom, said, "No, you just publish it as what it was—a book that you wrote as a as a Protestant." But later, um, in 1878. We have a picture of uh, of the 1878 edition. The 1878 edition, he he makes some revisions. Well, that's um, that's Ross's. Uh, that's Newman in 1845. A beautiful uh, portrait of Newman. But yeah, this is the the frontispiece of the 1878 edition, which uh, was the Catholic edition, in which he made some. Um, some uh, new preface and uh, some organizational uh, amendments to the essay, but the essay is basically the same essay, and uh, and he gives it his his own imprimatur as a cardinal uh, in 1878. Here's my work, so he finally does give it, get an imprimatur for it, but it's his own um, as a cardinal of the Catholic Church. So the essay stands, I think, as a testament to his own genius in thinking about the deposit of faith as something which was delivered once for all for the salvation of souls. I think sometimes we think about the essay on the uh, doctrinal development as something which is forward-looking, um, but I think as we look through the, the, the essay, I think we'll see that, that the whole of the essay is backwards-looking, looking retrospectively at how we can understand the coherence of the faith as one. It's the unity, uh, the mark of unity that he's really looking for. Now, a little bit of background. Um, the question of doctrinal development is, in some sense, not really asked before Newman. Uh, that being said, um, there is a recognition uh, that there is a unity to the faith across time. And the most famous articulation of this is actually from a fifth-century monk, who we do have a picture of. Uh, I don't think it's uh, it's just um, an icon of Saint Vincent of Laran, 
uh, an icon of St. Vincent of Lorraine who wrote in his commonatorium uh, that uh, these words, he wrote, let there be growth and abundant progress in understanding, knowledge, and wisdom in each and all, in individuals and in the whole church at all times and in the progress of ages, but only with the proper limits. That is, within the same dogma, the same meaning, and the same judgment. St. Vincent wanted to ensure that whatever variety, whatever difference of opinion, whatever doctrinal uh, understanding builds on previous understanding, that the church would always understand and individuals would understand that what is being communicated is the same dogma with the same meaning and the same judgment. That's pretty much the standard that Newman's going to set for himself in working out the essay. In 1870, uh, just before he produces the 1878 edition, the First Vatican Council in De Filius stresses this view of identity, this, this view that things should be the same, the same dogma, the same meaning, the same judgment, semper idem, always the same. Now, many, of course, will see in Vatican II uh, a greater stress on growth than identity, but these two things go together, even in Vincent, that there's growth and identity, that what is the same dogma with the same meaning and the same judgment can grow in understanding over time. De Verbum stresses that um, growth should always be understood as growth in understanding what has been handed on, not a departure from what has been handed on. Pope John Twenty-Third opens a whole council precisely with the words of St. Vincent of Laurent, stating that the positive truths of the faith are one thing. They're, they're one thing, even with all the variety and different ways of enunciating that we should always keep the same meaning and the same judgment, uh, Pope John uh, Twenty-Third said. This Vincentian rule, then, is precisely what Newman discovers and elucidates. Newman sought to articulate how we could avoid two extremes. One, a kind of dogmatic relativism, a historicism in which things are always changing and we don't really have access to anything like the apostolic faith, the deposit of faith entrusted to uh, the church. Uh, on the one hand, we avoid a dogmatic relativism, but he also thought we should avoid some kind of dogmatic absolutism in which we enshrined dogmas, and as soon as they were written down, there was never any further understanding that could be pursued uh, or developed. And so he was trying to avoid these, these, these twin holes of possible error. He wanted to avoid, on the one hand, a primitivist view, which claimed that the whole deposit of faith was clear and completely understood from the beginning by all. And this was, I think, uh, a view that he came into contact with with evangelicals uh, who thought you could get back to the Bible and that what was in the Bible, that was the clear, pure water. And any kind of doctrine of Mary or any kind of doctrine of transubstantiation that came later, that was an accretion that you you couldn't trust. And so I, he wanted to avoid that primitivist view and to avoid uh, also the skeptical view, um, which thinks that we, we uh, are, are constantly 
uh, changing doctrine and therefore we have no contact with with what's been uh, delivered once for all. So he charted this Vincentian middle way, which maintained identity, same dogma, same meaning, same judgment, with the idea that we can grow in our understanding and that, and in fact, we might need to understand over time uh, principles which are eternal. So if God's going to give eternal principles, he's going to give them to human beings who are fallible and who need time to uh, be elevated in their understanding. And so there should be some kind of account of development. So Newman's idea of development does bear some marks of 19th century thinking about development. Romanticism stressed organic progress, and they preferred to work out their philosophical ideas through the category of history and process rather than through substance. Uh, it's not an accident that the theory of evolution is contemporary with Newman. I think uh, Darwin's just a, just six or seven years younger than, than Newman. That gives you a sense of his contemporaries. Um, um, uh, skepticism, Humean skepticism, um, Darwinian materialism, uh, evolution, Hegelian uh, dialectical views of history are all in the background. But it's interesting that Newman doesn't go in the direction, in any of those directions. The way Newman goes is he does stay with history, and he does stay with one aspect of Romanticism, which is the aspect of looking at the organic growth of things. Uh, the Romantics really were interested in a kind of integrity that wouldn't come, say, from metaphysical reflection, but would come from a reflection on on the physical growth of of natural things. Uh, and so that does feature into his thought. And as we'll see, it is actually the analogy of physical growth, uh, which with, with which he begins his essay. Newman wants us to begin thinking about doctrinal development on the analogy of physical growth. Why? Well, for one reason, um, it's actually this uh, organicism that he thinks actually allows us to break back into nature and think about what's natural, think about natural laws, think about what's in accord with nature. And so he's not afraid to look at the analogy of physical growth that, uh, that uh, romantics and materialists alike are interested in. But here he uses this uh, physical analogy to make a powerful account for the miraculous unity of the Catholic faith in every age. And so there's a way in which Newman's actually finding his way into uh, a modern discourse, a modern discourse about how we come to know things. And he's finding the right tools with which to enter into an argument with his time. With that background, we can turn to Newman's essay, or especially the fifth chapter of the essay, where he proposes this analogy of physical growth, and then articulates seven notes for distinguishing between what would count as uh, healthy, organic, authentic growth and decay, corruption, false development, right, of an organic thing. Uh, so uh, seven notes about genuine development versus corruptions of uh, in growth. All right. In the preface to his seven notes in chapter five, he is concerned to insist that this is something which uh, is rooted in the disciplini arcanum. This is the idea that 
um, the apostles receive the full deposit of the faith. The apostles receive everything. They don't receive just part. They receive the whole. And in receiving the whole tradition, the receiving the sacred deposit, they have everything guarded. That the early apostles have everything guarded and that even though they're not publicly articulating everything, they are handing everything on in principle. What we might think of as oral tradition, right, or that which is implicit, always accompanying their explicit teaching. From this, Newman took uh, the providentialist view that time is necessary to understand the sacred deposit. Time is necessary to understand the fullness of the divine deposit, to draw out and make explicit everything that was implicit in what the Lord gave to the apostles. As he writes, this may be called the theory of doctrinal development. Newman calls it a theory. Um, it's important, I think, as my colleague Michael Pakulik notes in an important essay on, on Newman, that this is a theory of doctrinal development. This is not itself a doctrine. Uh, Newman is presenting an idea of how we should think about doctrinal development. And his idea is that it's rooted in that original deposit. And everything unfolds from that original deposit. All right, so seven notes. The first note. So in the first chapter, uh, Newman writes that development means an increase in the understanding of an idea. The problem is not one of change, but the perfective standard for changes. This is where he says to live is to change, to be perfect is to have changed often. You might have heard that phrase. The real problem in Newman's view is not change per se. We shouldn't be frightened by change, but we should be worried about corruption. That's, that's what his real worry is, is not whether doctrine changes, but whether doctrine could be corrupted. A false or unfaithful development he says, is not an increase in understanding, but a kind of failure to understand. So the crucial question is, how can we know or, or test the difference between true development and corruption? And so he, he develops seven tests, um, and which he also calls notes. This fifth chapter begins with his desire to draw out a positive argument for proving what he calls the intimate connection, or rather oneness, with primitive apostolic teaching. As he looks backwards from the 18th to the 17th to the 16th centuries and back to the 5th and the 3rd and the 1st centuries, Newman sees the continuation of one religious system. One religious system. He's in awe of its unity. He's in awe of a unity that seems to him to beg for principles. He raises the question, the only question that can be raised is whether the said Catholic faith as now held is logically, as well as historically, the representative of the ancient faith, end quote. He maintains that it is, that modern Catholicism is nothing else but the legitimate growth and complement, the natural and necessary development of the doctrine of the early church and that this divine authority is included in the divinity of Christianity itself, he writes. 
that places us not in some sort of Hegelian dialectic and history, but squarely on the notion of legitimate natural growth of the same substance. Having become convinced of this, he pushes on the analogy of physical growth and how it would help to think about fidelity and corruption. Corruption breaks up physical life. It disintegrates how the parts are organized so as to lead to the death of a body. Corruption, quote, reverses and undoes what went before in a life, losing touch with its laws, its distinctive traits, its vigor, and its power of assimilation and self-repair. Taking this analogy as his guide, Newman says we can discriminate healthy developments not only of a body, but healthy developments of an idea. Healthy developments of an idea can be distinguished from, say, the state of corruption or decay of an idea. And then he states that all seven notes can be simply stated in one sentence. At the end, he'll also state it in one sentence. So we'll get a one-sentence description of his seven notes at the beginning and a one-sentence description of his seven notes at the end. Here it is. There is no corruption of the idea if it retains one and the same type, principles, and organization, if its beginnings anticipate its subsequent phases and its later phenomena protect and subserve its earlier phases, if it has a power of assimilation and revival and a vigorous action from first to last. Now that sentence includes all the notes in pairs. The first note and the second note concern preserving type and principle. The third and fourth notes concern assimilation and logical coherence and sequence. The fifth and sixth notes concern anticipating the future and conserving action upon the past. And the seventh note is chronic vigor. Chronic vigor is the sense of things lasting. The first type, the first note is preservation of type. This is pretty easy to understand, actually. Preservation of type is trying to understand what the nature of a thing is, really. Birds don't grow into fishes. Um, children don't grow into beasts. Um, acorns don't become dragonflies. Frogs don't become princes, except in fairy tales. Doctrine follows this law that um, there are natural limits, that there's potencies, that things develop and change according to their natures. Nature, in other words, develops in accord with its own proportions, with its own essence. Though he avoids metaphysical language, he's clearly speaking in Aristotelian metaphysical terms about natures. He wants to say that development of organic development like this entails growth that remains identically what it was. In the womb, you had a tiny arm. As a youth, your arm grew exponentially. And as an adult, your arm can perform a myriad of functions. It grows, develops, changes, but it remains the same arm that it was when you were in the womb. This is something like the idea of a preservation of type. And it's not only true of organic matter, but it's true of ideas. It's true also of offices. Think about a parish priest, a judge, a college, a monastery. An office or a rule is the same, even if a particular priest is corrupt. Indeed, corruption in an office is intelligible 
only because we know what the essential function of an office is. Just the way in which Augustine will tell us that we know that things are good because we know when corruption happens, when sin happens. We can't talk about a sin without some prior conception of the good, and so with a preservation of type. You can't have the thing, you can't have an account of the thing being corrupted if there isn't an essential function to the thing. Newman is after unity of type. He's after the unity of type, which is something like just knowing what a thing is and knowing what a thing is allows you to discriminate how it can remain what it is even under great outward appearance. A nation, for example, the example he gives is England. Uh, England that was faithful to the Pope is the same as England, which is apostate. The England that is infidel England is the same as faithful England. We can say that one state of affairs was better than the other. Faithful England's better than infidel England. But England didn't cease to be a nation. It has unity of type. An apostate nation remains the same type of thing. It's still a nation. So the example he gives here is of Rome changing from a republic to an empire. All the outward appearances were the same. All the offices were the same in the movement from republic to empire. But you've moved from something like a mixed regime to uh, absolute monarchy and empire. That's not a preservation of type, he thinks. That's actually a real alteration of the thing, uh, of the polity. And Newman says we should call that a corruption. We should call that a corruption of type. When the type itself has changed, even through the smallest of changes, uh, you could have a corruption of, of type. The gospel is full of shocking surprises to the Jews. He gives the example of St. Peter discovering that he can eat all this meat. Um, shocking surprises, um, yet everything contained in the old is revealed in the new. That's an example of preservation of type. The church is outwardly very different from Israel, and yet it's inwardly the same, such that the fathers call the church the new Israel. It is a preservation of type. Now, as I've suggested, this is really a note about the unity of nature, but type works as form to matter, uh, or as will later be evident, as principle relates to doctrinal variation, where principles carry, as it were, the fullness of the deposit. This is intimately connected, by the way, preservation of type for Catholicism for him is, is evidence in the fact that uh, Catholicism preserves the apostolic type right, that the faith from the beginning is apostolic, it has priests and bishops, and that Catholicism preserves the type uh, inscribed in the origins of the thing. The second uh, test is continuity of principles, and it's intimately connected with this preservation of type. These pairs go together, type and principles go together. It became clear, becomes clear in the second note, where he says that the the regulating power of doctrinal development is in the form or law or principle that the doctrines embody. And what may appear as a doctrine in one area may become a principle in another. Doctrines are like definitions of principles, he says. The definitions may develop, but they don't change the principles. 
principles are like the generative seed of doctrines. And the test is to see that the principles through doctrinal developments, to see them through all the different variations. Put differently, principles are the formal operation which make developments legitimate and uh, genuine, and that a departure from principles is what makes uh, developments not developments, but corruption. To preserve its type, that is to preserve the first test, the church must also preserve her principles. These two things have to go together. The, the principles uh, must be continuous. Elsewhere um, in the essay, he, he talks about a, a very detailed account of these principles. So he has principles of dogma. They have to stay the same. Principles of faith, principles of our theology of God have to stay the same. The principles of our sacraments have to stay the same. This principles of how we interpret scripture, um, fourfold sense of scripture must stay the same. Principles of grace must stay the same. Principles of asceticism must stay the same. The principles of the malignity of sin must stay the same. Um, and the principle of our capacity for sanctification must stay the same. So he he drills down in other places in the book, uh, not in chapter five where he's outlining, but but it gets greater doctrinal definition in terms of continuity of principles. But here he's just going for the general rule that we have to preserve uh, uh, principles. The third uh, note is called the power of assimilation. Uh, this is also pretty easy to understand that the church must have a power of absorption or assimilation or put differently, the church must have the power to incorporate things that are external to it. Not Pachamamas maybe, but uh, there's a lot of things that the church can incorporate and assimilate from cultures without ceasing to be what she is. Newman doesn't say this, but it strikes me that this assimilative power, this assimilative principle, um, is one which is, I think, proof of the divine constitution of the church, since the power of assimilation that he has in mind here is very similar to thinking about God uniting human nature to himself without ceasing to be himself. That Chalcedonian rule um, seems to be under the surface here, that the church must be able to absorb the world without ceasing to preserve type within the same principles. I think this is something that would the faithful immediately object to when they see that any, any kind of acculturation in which we're, we're trying to incorporate some external uh, aspect, something external to the church, if we're incorporating that in a way that makes the church cease to be what she is, the faithful go crazy. Um, and I think we've been seeing that in the news a little bit. So this is what he's concerned. The church must be able to absorb the world without ceasing to be herself, without ceasing to preserve type within the same principles. He writes, quote, a living idea becomes many, yet remains one. The church is rooted in a living idea. He doesn't say person, but there's a sense that it's rooted in a living principle, a living principle. And a living principle becomes many yet remains one. This is to say that this power of assimilation is proof that the church is the whole, which can order all the parts, right? 
the church is the one which is capable of incorporating things, respecting their integrity, but also incorporating them into a greater life, giving them a greater uh, coherence. The church assimilates uh, Hellenism. The church assimilates Rome. The church assimilates philosophical accounts of causality, metaphysics. The church assimilates uh, cultures throughout time. If you go to the Basilica here in Washington, D.C., you see hundreds of altars to um, Marian uh, uh, Marian altars to, uh, for different nations and cultures. And and I think this is evidence that uh, of the church, church's assimilative power. We have Our Lady of just about everything. So that's the power of assimilation. This fourth, this third test that uh, Newman says that that is a sign of true development if it can if it can incorporate externals uh, while remaining herself. Fourth, the fourth test is logical sequence. In retrospect, development is always genuine development is always logical. It always makes sense. You don't sort of scratch your head at developments, at true developments. Uh, developments are logical. They're not illogical. They're not irrational. So, for example, uh, the Council of Ephesus, uh, they defined the Blessed Mother as Theotokos, as God-bearer. Um, it's logical. It makes sense to reason from Theotokos to a doctrine of immaculate conception, right? That's not a leap to say this is the God-bearer, immaculate conception would follow that, or that assumption would follow that. This is a kind of a posteriori approach of reasoning after the fact, reflecting on history retrospectively, looking at the developments in retrospect and saying, these have a logical sequence to them. They make sense to me. I can see how one followed the other. Nothing's discordant here. One follows the other in, in a logical sequence. There's various ways in which he examines how this can go wrong. How it goes right is that you look and see that the, the logical sequence over time uh, shows you that true development um, will be in proportion as logical issue from the original teaching. You look retrospectively and you can see how it adds up. The fifth note is anticipation of its future. Now, this is a funny note. This is a note that sounds prospective, like he's looking ahead, anticipation of its future. But really, it isn't. Um, this is not someone projecting what, uh, what kind of developments they want in the future. Um, I think we know uh, people who do that today. They envision something they want in the future, and they, they project it. This is not what Newman means by anticipation of its future. It's also a hindsight question. I'll give a personal example. So when I was a little boy, my grandmother uh, called me the professor. Okay. She called me the professor. I don't know why she called me the professor. Um, she had no idea, obviously, that I was ever going to become a professor. Um, it was just a term of endearment for her. She just called me the little professor. Maybe I, I was occasionally precocious. I have no idea. Maybe it was ironic. I have no idea. But in retrospect, it seems like prophecy. In retrospect, looking back, it seems like this little foothold, uh, almost like Grandma knew um, that I would be a professor. It's an anticipation of the future that 
you can only see in retrospect. That's what he means by anticipation of the future. His own example is better. He talks about the Third Academy skeptics like Carneades. The Third Academy skeptics, they followed the Platonic Academy, and they claimed that uh, they were in continuity with Socrates. Because Socrates used irony once against the sophists, they think that they have continuity with them. And Newman says this isn't really continuity. Using a little bit of irony here and there is not skepticism. Um, now, he says if, if they could have shown that Socrates had deliberate doubts about first principles, then they could have claimed actual development. Then they could have claimed that the Third Academy skeptics were a development of the Platonic school. But because they can't show that, all we can say is that the Third Academy is skepticism is a corruption of Platonism. This can happen with heresies too. Um, uh, Baron Gar can state errors about the Eucharist that anticipate errors that the Protestant reformers will, will make uh, centuries later, right? Um, you couldn't anticipate, you can't say Berengar leads to Luther or Zwingli, but you can say, looking back, I see how this anticipates a, a corruption. But of course, what we're most interested in is this can happen with orthodoxy too, in a good way, that Augustine can state claims, for example, about the intermediate state, which anticipate the doctrine of purgatory, right? He doesn't know that there'll be a fully fledged doctrine of purgatory at some point in the future, but he's got a He's got some things in, in City of God that sure sound a lot like they're heading towards purgatory, right? That's this principle of anticipation of its future, that we can look back and say, ah, there's these little hints throughout history that point towards a true development. So the, so the note is that definite anticipation at an early period in the history of the idea to which it belongs is evidence of faithful development. So those little hints along the way evidence of faithful. The sixth test is conservative action upon its past. Now, this actually is what it sounds like. This is a kind of rule of fulfillment in a different direction. Regarding the law, Jesus said that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. This is the idea that true development conserves everything that came from its past. Uh, it never loses what it had, but it always gains what it had. True development, then, is always going to be positive. The councils are a great example of this. There, there's some who wrongly view that every council supersedes a prior one. I think I've met people who think the Second Vatican Council is the one council to rule them all. Um, it's, it's not quite that way. You'll find historians of Vatican II who claim that Vatican II negates the Council of Trent or Vatican I. This, Newman thinks, is a corruption, actually. If you think that some new uh, development is negating a prior one, that is itself a sign of a corruption. It's at the heart of what Pope Benedict calls the hermeneutic of rupture. That's this sixth type. The hermeneutic of rupture is not a bad way of thinking about it uh, in its negative form. Rather, true development conserves antecedent developments and adds to them, bringing out treasures old and new, nova et vetra. This note ensures that, that all additions should illustrate the past rather than obscure the past. That what this rule wants to say is that we the development, true development, corroborates the past 
rather than attempts to correct the past. This is a mark. So if we're trying to correct the past, that's a sign of the corruption, not the development of doctrine. Newman writes that the Catholic creed is for the most part, the combination of separate truths, which heretics have divided among themselves, which is to say that true development bears the mark of Catholicity and unity across time. Newman says that a developed doctrine which reverses the course of development which has preceded it is no true development, but a corruption. If the doctrine of Christ's hypostatic union, for example, were itself developed so as to say that the two natures were indistinguishable in their personal union, that would in fact be a corruption, indeed a heresy. But the note here is simple. It's simply to say that one test of true development is the tendency to conserve what has gone before it. The final test is this note about chronic vigor, or we might say perseverance. As he puts it, the course of heresies is always short compared to true development. It feels long to us when we're living through corruptions, um, when we're living through error and decadence. But Newman says corruption always leads to decline. It always leads to decline, whereas true development, retrospectively, it's everything's retrospectively for Newman, uh, always can be seen as having bigger, as having life-giving energy. We think about all the... Um, mendicant orders, uh, all the energy of different monastic communities that, uh, that's born in the medi medieval period. That's evidence of vigor. Arianism, Nestorianism, monophysitist communions were certainly kept together for a time, but they died. They lacked the chronic vigor. Uh, true development has a living unity, which gives it vigor and fortitude, tenacity, staying power. These are marks which show that there's something more than human going on uh, in, in the history, right? That there's some divine uh, power, that the staying power itself is divine uh, because it exceeds merely human historical circumstance. And so you can see how by the time Newman's at this seventh note, he's ready to convert. So to summarize, Newman's seven notes are really about discerning the unity and identity of an idea through its development uh, over time. Newman is taking history seriously. Uh, this is what makes him modern, I think, as proof for the truth of Catholicism. And this is what makes him uh, perennial. He says the seven notes can really be counted as one and the same thing to guarantee substantial unity over time. Newman thinks that, that this single substantial unity can be seen in type and principle and unit of power and logical sequence uh, in witness of early to later and later to earlier and in union of vigor and tenacity. But fundamentally, he wants to say that the deposit of faith has been the same and that we can discern retrospectively how it stays the same. I think this should be kept in mind. There, there are and have been those who dissent from the theory of doctrinal development. Joseph Fenton, who was uh, had my job at Catholic University a long time ago in the 50s, he did not believe in doctrinal development. There's no doctrinal development as far as Joseph Fenton was concerned. Cardinal Ottaviani was the same way. In fact, his Episcopal model was semper idem, always the same. Um, that, that I think um, we, we shouldn't forget that Newman's theory is just that. It's a theory of doctrinal development. 
we needn't regard it as magisterial to learn from it, right? Um, the the presumption, I think, for both Ottaviani, Semper Idem, and for Newman is that the church's teaching is not always changing. It is always staying the same because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, it's a path. Newman's trying to find a path for us to understand continuity, coherence, and the bond of charity, which makes Catholicism what it is, uh, that bond of charity with God. And he finds it. Uh, praise God. And it is, I think, the crucial thing which leads his intellect to Catholic Church. And, and uh, yeah, thank God for his conversion. Thank you so much, Dr. Pecknold. Uh, it's an absolutely wonderful lecture. And, and it's just uh, the, the practicality of St. John Henry Newman's writings to give us seven specific principles. You got to love it. That's awesome. I'll start with Ray Edder's question, who writes in, what misunderstandings should we avoid in reading St. Newman's essay and in reading slash listening to other interpretations of it? Well, I think the, the first one is, is the one I, I highlighted throughout, which was the idea that uh, development uh, would be prospective somehow. Uh, I think this is the most common misunderstanding of the essay. The development is something prospective. That is not how Newman views development. Development is something that you you discern between authentic and uh, development and corruption by looking back in history and following principles. That's Newman's method. Uh, it is it's uh, sad, maybe even diabolical, uh, to think about how many. Uh, people have used Newman to argue for some change they want uh, based on private judgment. Uh, that's what we see a lot of. We see a lot of using the principle of private judgment to argue for some prospective development. Newman would condemn it. There's a question coming in from Thomas Ray, who is asking, do you see what we might think of as a development, developmental continuity between the essay of the development of doctrine, which we've been exploring tonight, and the grammar of assent? Might the grammar of assent been seen to expand, continue, or develop the principles of unity enumerated tonight? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a good insight. Um, the grammar is similar in the sense that the they both, both the essay and the grammar are working out the epistemology of how we understand the unity of faith. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think they're doing it at different stages of Newman's own intellectual development. So, so yeah, that's interesting to see <laughs> the principles that you see in the essay actually do get developed and applied in different ways in, in the, the grammar of ascent. I like that idea. The illative sense in the grammar of ascent is this is is in a way working out how the how the work of the Holy Spirit is actually the agent of of conversion um, over time. And, and so I like that idea. I'm, I'm grateful for that question. The idea that the grammar of ascent is is deeply connected to the essay. I think that's right. All right, there's a question from Michael, who's writing, um, is there a class of infallible Catholic 
doctrine that can change and even be reversed. Uh, Michael's asking this because recently heard Trent Horn say this to Timothy Gordon and was surprised to hear it. I mean, I, it seems to me that uh, it would be a under Newman's terms that uh, that would count as corruption. It's hard for me to imagine the way in which, uh, and unless unless what the unless you have uh, one pope stating in infallibly what appears to be a contradiction to a previous infallible statement, but can be articulated as the same principle. That's what you would have to do, I think, on Newman's terms to count it as authentic. That is to say that actually the second infallible statement would be preserving uh, the principles of the first infallible statement, even if it, even if they appeared to be contradictory. Norma writes in and asks, uh, what is the connection of the so-called Anglo-Catholic churches with uh, John Henry Newman, if any, and, and is asking about connection with the Oxford movement. I'm just going to point Norma, you in the direction of Joseph Pierce's talk, where he does uh, touch on this. We'll include a link to that in the uh, follow-up email. Um, there's another question that's asking, according to St. John Henry Newman, when he's writing this, for something to pass this test of corruption, does it have to sort of pass all seven notes at the same time, obviously there's overlap, but in order to pass corruption, or does it have to just pass one? Do that, how does that work? That's a great question. And, and it's kind of answered in the, in the concluding um, sentence uh, where he, he says that these are all one and the same, that all the, these seven tests are really the same test. And so I think he wants to say that, yeah, it has to meet all of these tests because they're all the same test. That's why he calls them notes. Uh, it's all one one test, but seven notes of one test. And so that that's the way to think about it, is these are seven articulations of the one test, seven notes on the one test that we have to apply. Let's end with uh, David's question, who's writing, if there is a corruption in development, what can be done about it? There's a second part to that question that I just want to, that you can focus on this second part, which is, is it possible that when we're you're mentioning how some things can be seen when we clearly when we look past but it's kind of hard to see it when we're in the thick of things would saint john henry newman hold that it's possible for something to become so corrupted that the people inside it that are experiencing are kind of blind to that corruption over time yeah i mean i i think you'd want to say that you know, you, you'd have to be sort of willfully blind, though. I mean, you're, you're capable of discerning what, what the difference is between. I mean, that's part of what he wants to show you is that um, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't just take things blindly. You should actually pay attention to and test. Test the spirits. Test what's going on in, in these articulations of the faith. Are they genuine or are they corruptions? Um, and so, in, in this sense, he, he actually, I would think, would say, yeah, of course you can be, your your conscience can be deformed. Of course your conscience can error, can be an error. You have to be properly formed and you have to be formed in the in the sacred deposit of faith that's been handed on once for all. And that gives you the hierarchical church, that gives you the magisterium, that gives you all sorts of aids to uh, knowing what true and false development would be. And of course, the I, I take the question to have in the background of worries about whether or not 
the magisterium would continue to have authority under certain corruptions. The magisterial statements themselves uh, belong to this whole coherence over time. And so magisterial statements, which are wildly out of explanatory principled unity of preserving type, those magisterial statements um, need to find the, the living principle that that make them true, or they need to be discarded as as evidence of corruption. For those who are tuning in, there's kind of a, a probably a wide range of uh, familiarity with some of the terms that are being used. I just point you to the talk that's uh, limits of power that goes through these definitions. What exactly is a synod? What what is a magisterial statement? Um, so on and so forth. If you want to explore that. Um, Dr. Pecknold, I want to thank you for uh, joining us tonight. I, I didn't know that you had um, tweeted out the entire, did you say the entire city of God? It was over 15 weeks. We had a long time to do it. So <laughs> I think uh, you fit in quite well here at the Institute. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.